Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So I tend to go to a lot of craft fairs, no matter where I am. I'm currently doing fieldwork for my dissertation, and even now I'm spending the weekends looking at handmade jewelry and antiques in large fairgrounds across the Middle East. One of the big trends um, in jewelry in the Middle East is jewelry with Arabic font on it. So versus the Quran, poetry, calligraphy, you can custom order this stuff on Instagram too. Jewelry designers are also doing something that's quite interesting. They're going to calligraphy school to learn how to make fonts that evoke calligraphy in their designs. But that begs the question, where did Arabic font come from to begin with? What's its relationship to calligraphy? My name is Ana Mansour, or Nadira, and I'm a graduate student at Princeton University's Department of Near Eastern Studies, and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. We'll be talking sort of about the history of the book, calligraphy, font, all of these topics will swirl together. And my guest is Hala Awji, who is an assistant professor of art history in the Department of Fine Arts and Art History at the American University of Beirut, or AUB. She holds a PhD in art history from Binghamton University, um, an MA in art criticism and theory from Art Center College of Design, and a BFA in graphic design from AUB itself. Her research interests include, amongst many, um, Arabic book and print culture, 19th century Islamic art and architecture, and the history of modern science in the Islamic world. She's the author of a new book, Out 2016 from Brill, Printing Arab Modernity, which is a history of the American Protestant missions Arabic publications printed in Beirut for Ottoman readers during the 19th century, the subject of today's podcast. Uh, So welcome to the podcast, Hala. Thank you for having me. So I I have been talking about your book nonstop for a I think roughly since July when I read it for the first time, I think it is a phenomenal addition to the growing history of the book, of to intellectual history. Um, and I, when I when I talk to people about it, they're just they often say, you know, it's a very specific book. It's almost a micro history because it's so focused on the American Protestants' mission um, and what they what they printed. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is this this tells this larger regional history. It's so useful to me and what I do um, as an aspiring intellectual historian who works on newspapers. So I. Congratulations on the book. It's, it's phenomenal. Thank you. So um, we take text and print for granted in our day and age as we do literacy. And I was just, just very generally, what does print culture mean to you? How would you define it? Well, yeah, I mean, print culture is those, you know, very everyday items that we take for granted, as, as you just said. Um, it's, uh, you know, print culture for all its profusion in society today in the form of newspapers, books, magazines, booklets, posters, and so on. It's actually something that we rarely re- uh, notice as a material form and its materiality. You know, we read and we look at this material, but unless we're told otherwise, we don't really engage with it um, critically. We don't really consider these items as objects per se. Yeah, I think I was telling someone recently that my dissertation project, one manifestation of my dissertation project was born when someone handed me a pamphlet on a bus. It was an Ramadan and it was some sort of pamphlet on, um, I think it was, you know, just various sort of benedictions or dots that you can make. And I was just, I picked up the pamphlet and I was like, wow. Not this didn't exist a hundred years ago. Um, 
So I, and, and then again, we, we interact with text in so many different ways, be it on a screen or in a book, we, we take it for granted. So as this is a very broad question, as people who interact with books on a regular basis or text and print, what, what, what should we notice when we look at a book? What do you notice specifically when you pick up a piece of text or you see something online for the first time? Right. I mean, the, the cliche, of course, is, uh, you know, the book's cover that we're never supposed to judge a book by the cover and so on. And that's somehow, um, you know, this this attitude towards the form evokes the, this, the old adage that form is just uh, supposed to follow function or that, you know, the form of the book, its cover, its binding, its uh, the way that it's designed, its visual conventions are not really as important as the ultimate function of the book as, as a bearer of textual information. Um, but what, what I like to do or what I do or what our art and design historians uh, tend to do is that um, when working with these kinds of books is to turn a critical eye to the look of the book. You know, as readers, it's important to take notice of the other ways of reading a book as part of our experience in interacting with it. You know, um, things like where do our hands go when we open the book? And, you know, when you open up a book, there are these spaces, these margins uh, along the size that are actually there intentionally for your hands so that you wouldn't smudge ink, uh, you wouldn't touch the ink. Um, but why are mar- certain margins more narrow than others? Um, how is text arranged on the page? You know, which visual components, when you open up a book, uh, which visual components attract our attention first? And uh, people like me ask the question, why? Why is it that some, some parts of the book uh, immediately call out to the reader? uh, And what does that mean uh, as part of the reader's experience? That's so interesting, just because we think of margins. I mean, we live in a day and age where we're the books we get printed are not necessarily going to smudge. But I definitely think of margins as a place where my notes go or where, you know, I I can I can scribble or I can put a post-it. And we don't think of it in the same way. But these things really govern our interactions with these physical objects. Um, Yeah. And I mean, just to switch gears for a little bit, I think one of the book's strong points is the fact that you have this appreciation for Islamic script, sort of speaking of another thing that governs um, how things evolve. And I mentioned that you have that one of your interests is 19th century Islamic art, and then you have this background in graphic design. Um, So how did this specific project come about? And sort of what's your intellectual history there? Yeah, so I mean, as you said, I, I was actually trained as a graphic designer. So I studied graphic design and actually worked in advertising for a bit um, before I decided to pursue a degree in art history. I have I, I, I am non-traditional in the sense that I don't have an actual proper art historical uh, undergraduate education. Uh, so my historical interest in art uh, is actually directly linked to my interest in the, the art of the book, which is, in fact, very much informed by my design background. Um, when I went on to do my master's at uh, Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, I had the, the, the rare opportunity to work at a rather cutting-edge uh, letterpress uh, at that institution. It's called Archetype Press. Uh, which And so this, this press essentially had numerous old traditional uh, letterpresses um, that they would use to produce uh, examples of contemporary art or, or take on contemporary book art. And so um, it, it's all the design. It was like a coming together of design, contemporary design, and this traditional, more traditional mode of production. And I had the opportunity to work with metal type and learn about uh, the 
how these kinds of things were made and how these machines worked. And I began to wonder about the history of Arabic printing. Um, so it made sense that I would look further into this uh, as I pursued a degree in Islamic art history. And what I realized when I was doing my PhD was that one of the main problems in this field um, is that all Islamic art historians pay a lot of attention to manuscripts, to things done by hand, to painting. But they didn't really consider print culture to be something that is worthy of a closer critical scrutiny in the same way that you would look at, uh, you know, or, or analyze manuscripts. So I saw this sort of unique opportunity to change the conversation about Arabic print culture um, and to utilize some of the methods that art historians use, um, but for a study and a close analysis of print. I definitely really appreciated that just because, as I mentioned, I work on newspapers and newspapers evolve. Are, are, that period sort of the, the, the first generation Arabic newspaper sort of intersects with, with the period you're um, dealing with the book in the 19th century. Um, but there's so many little things that you see that are definitely, I don't want to say hangovers, but they're definitely things that um, evolved from this relationship with manuscript printing. And I mean, they'll use different ty- typefaces in different areas in newspapers or different headings, and, and, and there's a clear connection. So I definitely appreciated that. And that's something I think we need to think more about in history is continuity versus always focusing on rupture. Um so as I mentioned earlier, this book is specifically about the American press. It's a very, I think a lot of, you know, in, in history, we're always tempted to sort of go bigger to sort of, especially with its emphasis on global history, is to sort of incorporate more sources in, to incorporate more archives in. What I appreciate about this book is that it was very tight. It was very dense, um, very detailed work. But you also make this wide overarching claim, which I think definitely applies to much of print culture in the, uh, with regards to the Arabic um, script, um, which is the connection between manuscript and print culture. So, but it's also about missionaries. So can you sort of set the stage for us? What are missionaries doing at this point in time in the Middle East? Um, what is, where's the intersection with the Ottoman empire, which is where Lebanon is at the time. It's considered, it's part of the Ottoman empire. Right. Well, uh, this is uh, this American press, uh, and and that's that's. I mean, I'm using the the, the colloquial name for this particular press in Arabic, Al Matbaal Um It was uh, first and foremost uh, a Protestant missionary press in Beirut. Um, the press was founded in 1834 in Beirut, but it was initially set up. Uh, in an earlier form on Malta uh, in 1831. Now, um, these American missionaries who founded this press in Beirut were part of the, a mission uh, to the Ottoman Syrian provinces. So Lebanon at this time was not called Lebanon. It was actually a part of uh, Ottoman Syria, which was really, it, it included uh, modern-day Palestine and parts of Jordan and Syria and Lebanon today. Um, and this particular mission was an extension of the Boston-based American Board of Foreign Missions, um, of American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. Um, And uh, they first arrived in the area around 1820. What's interesting is that their original mission to the region was to convert Jewish and Muslim communities to Protestantism. So they 
spent a lot of time initially in Jerusalem, which was an Ottoman city at this time. And they were, there was no other American presence in the region. They were under the protection of the British consul, uh, who had diplomatic connections with the sublime port, with, with, with the Ottoman state. And what these, uh, what's interesting is that these Americans, they quickly realized, um, that proselytizing amongst Jewish and Muslim groups was going to be nearly impossible. Uh, there are many, you know, socio-political and cultural restrictions on this. And so they decided to focus instead on the so-called, uh, what they called nominal Christians. And so these were any Christians who were not Protestants, uh, Greek Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, Maronite, and Greek Catholic communities. Um, many of these groups of non-Muslim minorities lived in the Syrian provinces uh, and the Mount Lebanon region. So it made sense then that the mission would establish its headquarters in Beirut, which is a rather cosmopolitan uh, growing port city at this time, um, and the press was established there. But Beirut is just one of the many stations that uh, belong to this particular mission. Yeah, I've always, whenever I bring up the fact that Arabic printing had sort of an early phase in Malta, people are always a little surprised. And then I'm always like, well, you know, you have all of these connections. I mean, Maltese is also, it has Arabic in it. So it's always, it's always one of those things that I really enjoy um, was sort of tripping people up with that fact. Um, Okay, so right. The point about Malta is that um, the, the first the, the the presses that were publishing in Arabic there uh, before uh, the American mission were was it was the British Church Missionary Society. So they they had their press there um, long before the Americans did uh, in the 1820s, and they they're the ones who were actually publishing Arabic books. The American press themselves they didn't really publish Arabic books uh, on when they were in Malta. It wasn't until they moved to Beirut that they were able to procure an Arabic typeface to begin printing in Arabic. Um, so what drove you to focus on one press versus a constellation of presses? Because um, contemporary to this press in Lebanon is um, what we often call um, the press at Bulaq in, um, or Bulaq in Cairo. Um, and state printing, and it's contemporary to this period, but it's also a very different project. So what what drove you to focus on this one press? Well, to be honest, I initially conceived of this project as a much, much larger scale history of Arabic printing. I wanted to cover everything, you know, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, North Africa, even Istanbul. And uh, of course, uh, that was an ideal. And when I delved into the research, I realized that um, that there's the, the, each of these projects uh, had, you know, very different goals in mind at this particular time. And what drew me to the American press was um, was a little bit of sentimentality on my part. Um, I was really happy to find out that one of the that these that this being one of the earliest Arabic commercial presses in the region was actually established by the same people who founded my alma mater, um, the American University of Beirut. Um, and I, I realized that the American press was also an important site uh, for uh, serving as the first publisher of books by Arab intellectuals uh, who were non-Muslims, uh, like Butras al-Bustani, Khalil al-Khuri, Tamis al-Sujat, and so on. So I was really curious about this interesting role that the press played as a publisher of secular works, in addition to being a missionary press. And I think what, what sets um, the American press apart from Bulaq 
is uh, Bula is very much a state's press. It's very much a Muslim press. Um, and, and, and it's got its very interesting history and there's a lot of people working on that now. Um, with the American press, it was, it was a bit of a, a weird, it had a bit of a weird thing to it in that it's a, it's, it's a missionary press that locals were using to produce their own work, works, but these were also locals who were not Muslim and would not have had the same kind of access that members of, um, Muslim uh, Muslim members of Ottoman communities would have had, and so it provided them with this unique opportunity to uh, make a name for themselves in a context where it may have been a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I, I would like to draw attention to the fact that many people are working on these individual presses right now, and with the press of Bulak, um, there's a dissertation which I believe you cite, which is by Catherine Schwartz, which will hopefully be up yes. soon, um, which actually makes the same point you do. I, I read them together and I thought, wow, they make a pretty similar point about rupture and continuity and sort of the relationship of manuscripts to print culture, but they're doing it in these completely different contexts. And I think you just, you both make this great um, sort of um, greater methodological contribution um, and you read texts similarly, just looking at sort of how they're composed Um so to ask another very broad question, sort of what is the history of the Arabic book prior to this? I mean, we have manuscripts um, and many people use them. I mean, traditionally, that's manuscripts are sort of the bedrock of the field of Islamic studies. Um, but how are people consuming books prior to print? How are ordinary people consuming books? Are they being consumed? Uh, what does literacy look like in that sense? And I guess we can talk both about Lebanon, but also the greater Middle East. Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a very good question, one that I'm often asked because uh, in the history of European, uh, you know, book baking, uh, print was taking place centuries before, and so uh, this idea that um, you suddenly get this rupture in the 19th century. I mean, certainly you had that type of that, that going on in Europe at the time, but um, but it was but there was a unique case going on uh, in uh, in the Arab and Islamic world. Before the before the the more prominent use of print, before print became the main mode of book production, as you said, manuscripts uh, were essentially how were essentially the kinds of books that um, people were producing or circulating. Now, um, the traditional understanding of this is that you know manuscripts belong to a very very elite uh, group of readers and producers um, often associated in some way with the state with the Ottoman court or who, whatever uh, state we're talking about uh, and that uh, there was there's questions of accessibility um, and, and this is not necessarily a kind of um, a way in which knowledge was shared very widely uh, and so you usually had manuscript workshops where you had, you know, scriptoria and people were uh, educated in a very a hierarchical, uh, rigid system uh, and books were produced uh, for consumption by specific elites uh, and scholarly individuals. Um, scholars have, have, have problematized that particular uh Narratives. People like Dana Sajdi and Nelly Hanna have told us that no, well, there's uh, a consumption of books and book production beyond these uh, rigid elite uh, circles, and you had um, people who were semi-trained as calligraphers or may not have been successful uh, calligraphers and who were producing their own books and who were sharing books in a more popular way. But despite all of this, it's, it's important to understand that you know books. Are, remain rather 
to be rather expensive. Um, and we're certainly, I mean, not affordable as, as commodities for, um, for your average person. Um, and people were, and educational systems were very different before the 19th century. And so it's not true that everybody can read, very few people can read. Um, and, and so the, it's not just that the books uh, were not widely available, it's just also that they were not necessarily, uh, there wasn't necessarily a demand for um, this large amount of, uh, sorry, my, I'm rambling. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so the, yeah, so the question, there's a question of demand and the question of access um, and all of these issues. With the emergence of print, it isn't that print changes uh, literacy. I, I don't, I mean, a lot of people, you know, talk about how print is an agent of change. And I, and I, and I, I'm not, I don't necessarily see it that way. I, society is what determines how things happen. Uh, society, it's from society that you get the impetus, uh, for social change and for intellectual change. And, um, with modernization re- reforms, with changes to, uh, education, you get, uh, you get, more people interested in, in books, more interest, people interested in producing books and consuming books. And um, with changes to uh, the technology of print itself, I mean, this is something that we don't often talk about, but the 19th century sees changes to actual printing presses. Uh, they become a lot more affordable. They become a lot more easier to use. They become a lot more easier to transport. And, and this coincides with the change that you see in the nature of the Arabic book at the time. No, I absolutely agree with that. And what I love right now is we're sort of riding this very progressive wave. I think of it as a progressive wave um, in intellectual history of the Middle East, in book history of the Middle East, which is um, history of literacy, which is definitely that literacy is a tool. We shouldn't necessarily think of it as a social good. We shouldn't necessarily think of it in terms of progress. Um, but we also shouldn't think of it as this great moment of rupture and that there's a printing revolution all of a, mo- all of a sudden, which is, which is one term that has been used um, to describe describe printing elsewhere and in the Middle East. Um, and it's definitely something I think about a lot because I, 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 you know, there's this temptation to see all these new forms that come with print as revolutionary, but time sort of depending on your scope, uh, your temporal scope, you can see change as both rupture and continuity. And that's something that really interests me. So just again, to go back, um, you mentioned what was happening in Egypt contemporary to this period, the, 19, the 1820s and the 1830s and what was being printed. And from my knowledge of it, a lot of this, and, and you mentioned education, um, was to feed into state schools, to create textbooks. Um, that's also when you have the first printings of the Quran. Uh, so what is the American press producing? Because as you mentioned, they're, they're a missionary press. So they're not producing the same sorts of texts. Are they producing, um, are they going to the manuscript tradition and printing new books up um, from those manuscripts or are they producing new material? Are they producing translations? Yeah. So, so they, they were doing many things. Um, it, it, it all changes. And I'm like, my book, what it does is, I mean, again, as I said, it's a very, it's a very, it's like a slice, a small slice of a big pie that is the history of Arabic printing. And, and I, and I actually focus on a, on, on a, on a few decades, uh, because what I noticed in my research is that what was happening in the 1830s was not necessarily still happening in the 1860s. This is an important period of major sociopolitical change in the region. And we see that, uh, definitely being negotiated in the context of the American press and its, in its uh, publications. Um, so what uh, the, the 
the press itself was initially established to produce educational books in Arabic uh, that were meant to be used uh, when, in the missionary schools and in the seminaries. So this is what was going on um, in the 1830s. Uh, the missionaries at that time uh, saw what they perceived to be the, a paucity in, in Arabic school books. And so they, they sought to fill that void for their own purposes. Um, to better serve the mission's vision, though, um, particularly the vision of the board in Boston, and that, that vision that the board had for its foreign missions, uh, the missionaries began to work on an Arabic translation of the Bible. And so these missionaries in Beirut argued that the main reason a press like this was necessary and needed to remain uh, something that the board funded uh, was that it was it was where this the they could print the Arabic Bible and associated religious texts that would then be used uh, by catechists that these were critical for their proselytizing project. Um, so what's in, but uh, so what's interesting about this press is that from very early on. It, there's a there's a dual interest in secular uh, and in religious works for use by the mission. Now, what what changes um, over the course of a few years is that um, that the the books that the mission prints become more and more the kind of secular works that people who were not interested in converting would purchase and would be interested in reading, and so. Um, these uh, these kinds of texts were usually, you know, the typical educational books, uh, arithmetic, geography, grammars. They also had a few uh, Arabic translations of evangelical fiction or, or religious fiction that is not explicitly religious in, in the sense like books, uh, stories like The Dairyman's Daughter and Robinson Crusoe were translated into Arabic um, for, for the local populace. And, and of course, you had the more religious works, you know, The Pilgrim's Progress was translated into Arabic and printed there, The Passion of the Christ, many hymnals and psalters. Um, but as the press evolved, uh, you start to see more and more historical, literary, poetic, and linguistic texts that were being produced not by the missionaries, but by local intellectuals. Um, so they would be brought in to produce, uh, to, to write or translate certain books that had nothing to do really with, um, with the mission's uh, proselytizing goals. Um, but uh, they, they would produce these books and then they would be sold uh, within the mission's uh, press and, and the mission's press acted as a, as a bookshop of sorts. Uh, and what was really interesting is that at some point, the, the, the board stops funding this press. Um, and the, what ends up sustaining the press itself is the fact that local scholars would rent out the press and would pay you know, would, would, would use the, the press, uh, and I believe they would pay the mission, or at least they would hire people at their own expense. And then they would produce books, and the mission would sell some of them, and the scholars would be able to kind of have books that they would then distribute to other uh, bookshops and uh, magazines in town to sell. So we're going to go even, I mean, we've already described sort of how this is a sort of a small slice or a micro history. Um, and we're going to go sort of even more further in, take more of a microscopic lens, because one of the great accomplishments of this book is its focus on font and typography. And I, I mentioned to you at some point that um, I've been talking about your book since July. And one of the th- one of the conversations that spawned from uh, me and a friend realizing that we had both read your book and discussing it was um, she works on the history of the 
um, the physical Quran, what we call the Mus'haf. And she and I were sitting in a cafe in Cairo and talking about, you know, our research for the day, what we'd done. And she pulls out her phone and she's showing me some pictures of some samples. And we're like, okay, we got to look on it on the, on the computer screen. So we look, cause we need to like, look at the font up close. It's not, it's not working just looking at it on the computer screen. And we're sitting there marveling over the difference between the fonts of my newspapers that are printed in the late 1880s um, for that particular week and her printings of the Quran from across the 19th century. And we're just marveling over the difference in font, um, how beautiful the font for the Quran was. And at some point, someone walked behind us, the owner of the cafe who knows us quite well, and he was just like, you guys are nerds. (laughs) You're like marveling over font. Um, but that's definitely the impact your book had is it taught me the, 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 the importance of font because I never really took it seriously before. I think I always took the material aspect of what I studied quite seriously. Like how does someone hold a newspaper? But I never took into consideration like, oh, well, the font looks like this. So it means this. So more specifically, sort of where does where, where were these missionaries getting the font from? Where were how did font develop with these with this missionary press? So it's funny that I mean you're 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 talking about the beauty of of some of these typefaces that you're that you're looking at and and actually I mean the the, the aesthetic aspects of uh, typography in Arabic typography uh, in the 19th century were was probably uh, the reason why um, uh, printed books or actually wait scrap that can we can we redo um, yeah. Uh, so, so the aesthetic aspects of typefaces that you're that you're talking about um, with your friend, uh, this is this is part of probably one of the reasons why uh, Arabic printing doesn't become popular uh, until the 19th century when you get uh, improved technologies uh, that allow uh, type founders to cast Arabic type that most closely resembles calligraphic script. Um, and uh, and so the, the problem with Arabic printing and with with Arabic typefaces is that Arabic calligraphy, the scripts in Arabic calligraphy, um, is it, it it hinged upon it being a cursive connected script, right? So unlike unlike English or other Latin based languages, you can't have gaps between letters. Um, and so uh, in early Arabic printing, and the earliest Arabic printing you get is actually it's happening in Europe. What you would see when you look at some of these really early texts from like the 1600s is that there are gaps between the letters. There are little gaps between the letters um, that, that, that takes away uh, the sort of fluidity that is uh, in, intrinsic to the beauty of uh, an Arabic script. Uh, and now these were not, um, these were essentially casting issues. And it's just when, when the individual letter forms are cast, uh, and they're then placed together, there's always going to be these little gaps. Um, and so this was, this was, this was one of the main problems that the missionaries in the 19th century who were, who were trying to develop, uh, Arabic typefaces for this press, this was an issue that they had, um, and they were trying to work around. Another issue that they had was, um, the, the vocalization marks, right? So the vowel marks, the marks that you see on the tops and bottoms of letters that tell you uh, how uh, that help with pronunciation when you're reading. Um, now, most Arabic readers would say, well, these are not absolutely important to reading an Arabic text. But for the missionaries who had a rather Orientalist understanding of what uh, locals needed uh, to uh, when reading 
a book, what they needed to have on that page. Um, they, they perceived vocalization to be absolutely uh, intrinsic to this. And the problem with that is that, I mean, in addition to uh, creating a typeface uh, that had the kind of letter forms that were fluid enough to, to mimic handwritten scripts that looked connected, they also had to find a way to include these little, little uh, pieces of metal that would act as... Um, vowels and find a way to make to to arrange them uh onto arrange them within uh the, the typeface that they're setting so that when it's printed onto the page it doesn't look uh it doesn't look odd it doesn't look like they're just random marks uh, and these were all like these are two of many technological issues that they were facing and so what these uh american missionaries did initially was that they would take samples of what they considered to be beautiful Arabic scripts. So they would go to calligraphers and they would have them, you know, produce multiple samples of, of calligraphy. And then they took these samples uh, to a European type foundry. The first type foundry they used was in Leipzig um, in Germany. And they tried to cast or design a typeface that was based on these calligraphic samples. So that a typeface that followed the general rules of Arabic calligraphy, but also found ways to work around the technological hurdles of translating uh, a script into a typeface. Okay. Um, I mentioned before that there's a dissertation by um, a woman by the name of Catherine Schwartz, uh, who, cur- who finished her doctorate at Harvard a couple of years ago and is now working on the book version of her dissertation. And one of the, and she works on Egypt and the political economy of print in Egypt. And one thing I really enjoy about the book, um, and I actually had to, to sit down and think about sort of the, the technology that she was writing about, um, is the connection between manuscript and print culture in Egypt actually has to do with lithography. So can you sort of break down lithography for our listeners and then sort of um, tie it into what was happening in Lebanon at the time? Because it's quite different, but it has similar results. Yeah, I mean, it's similar in the sense that lithography and letterpress are both printing uh, technologies, but I would actually say that um, that that's where the similarities end. Lithography is very unique uh, uh, as as a mode of printing because what it does uh, is that it allows a sort of more seamless translation of um, from scribal methods to printed ones. So what, what lithography essentially uh, is as as a method is that you would have a stone a printing stone. And um, you can either draw with a crayon, uh, a a special crayon, directly onto the stone, or you would draw what you need on treated paper. You would write what you need on treated paper, and then you would transfer whatever you have on that paper onto the stone, and then you would print that particular stone. And so what this means is that there, that you don't have to work with metal, clunky metal type. You don't have to work with composing lines and placing them in the, you know, locking them into the press and worrying about type deficiencies and worrying about how things are aligned together, because essentially you can maintain the same exact methods that you had in a scribal workshop. Um, But now you can use them for, in in a a new technology. So the same calligrapher who uh, was, uh, 
writing out uh, a manuscript or uh, writing out uh, a text and including uh, certain calligraphic elements would still be able to do the same thing, except now you do it on treated paper that is then printed. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes absolute sense. And it's one of the reasons actually why I, I, I'm always explaining to people that Cairo isn't as important as people think it is. It is important, but it isn't as important as people think it is for printing of Arabic newspapers because it actually starts much later in Cairo. And one of the reasons why is actually Cairo is much more dependent on lithography. Um, whereas in Beirut, you have the precedent of the American press. So you have Arabic newspapers coming out as early as 1858 um, that have longevity, that sort of have this popularity and are able to, to ride a wave and set the standards for the region. So it is really important that we understand the difference between these different types of, of um of, of tech, these different technologies. Um, and it's also another reason why, I mean, you have this rich uh, tradition in Cairo in the 1860s and 1850s of making, um, taking manuscripts and making them into printed books because you can use the same people who wrote them out to begin with. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, and with, um, the, in Beirut uh, at the American press, what's really interesting is that they had, they had two lithography machines one broke and that was never fixed. Um, another was fixed, but they did not use it for the purposes of printing books. They used it for maps. Uh, they used it for spelling cards for schools, but they never actually used it for, uh, you know, newspapers or for, or for books or journals in the same way that, um, you know, the press in Bula, uh, was used both the letterpress technology and uh, lithographic technology in their productions. Um, and I'm not really quite sure why. It might be di- diverging attitudes towards uh, lithographic printing. Uh, in general. Yeah, it also could just be that you have this market. It's, it's, there's so many different factors, and this is important to emphasize, that tie into the history of the book. It's not just about the book. It's about economic history. It's about political history. It's about cultural history, which is why I think your study was very rich, and I think it would have been very difficult to do this mega project that involved the entire Arabic printing world, um, and you just do it so well, and there's so much detail. Um, and and the people who work at your the press um, really come out as characters. You get a sense of who they are and what they're doing. Um, so I don't want to sort of tiptoe around this because you mentioned this in the title, the word modernity and the concept of modernity um, is one of the things I think the field of Middle East studies generally has had to contend with. What does modernity mean? What, you know, how do we define it? Do we use the Arabic term for it? Or do we use the term modernity because there's so much sort of theory about what mo- the modern is? And I think what sort of goes hand in hand with this, and I've referenced this several times over this conversation, is the idea of rupture and continuity, is, you know, does the printing press produce this huge rupture? Is there, uh, you know, a sort of continuum? Is it a bit of both? So I suppose, how do you, what are your general thoughts on what modernity is, how we should write about it? And also, you know, what people often think accompanies modernity, which is rupture. Right. Um, I, I do think it's a little bit of both. I think uh, when it comes to modernity, you know, as a, as a term, as a concept, it's really about progress. And so that in and of itself is, is about this kind of an idea of a rupture with, uh, you know, you define the modern by what came before it, right? There's a need for this rupture for what came before. Um, you know, it's the modernization process that changes modes of production and the social relations to, to modes of productions and uh, the relations of people with each other. Um, I, don't, I don't see it as a situation as that can be avoided when you're considering the 19th century um, you know, as, as the era of this, the great transformation of this period, the rise of capitalism that causes a major break. So there is that rupture with modes of production from the past and, um, and the economic system of the past. But 
that as you say, and as, and I, and as I argue in my book, is that you still see uh, a continuity. Um, history is not linear in that sense. There is a relationship with the past. And it's an important relationship because it's a, in, in, in some ways it's a dialectical one, right? It's how you, you define what the present is. And what's interesting about um, these printed books is that you really do see that happening, that sort of dialectic uh, taking place on the surface of these pages, where uh, you have conventions that are clearly emulating uh, those of the manuscripts, but they're in printed form, and you have uh, the way that the book is arranged with the inclusion of title pages, with the inclusion of, of footnotes and certain other elements that we associate with modern modes of reading, you have that there. So it's, it's clear that if you put a manuscript and a printed book from the 19th century side to side, they don't look alike. Uh, you know, you can't not say that there that that there isn't some rupture going on, and there's rupture in the way that they were produced, and also that the way that they look. But you also have these perennial motifs um, and this sort of uh, continuity of uh, an understanding of what people were expecting when uh, they were looking at a book, what they want, what they expect books to look like, how they expect to read them. Um, the continuity is there. I actually think that's a general principle that one could take away from your book that is really important just to think about with regards to everyday life. I mean, more professionally, more academically, I think the same thing about newspapers. Like, I, you can't argue that a newspaper existed before, in the Arabic-speaking context, before a certain period. You can't. There just wasn't the same equivalent. Um, print really made it possible to mass produce something, because I think having a general audience and intending something to get to a general audience is a really big part of the story. But what I also think is you look at a newspaper and you're like, ah, that kind of looks like chronicle writing or like the fact that they privilege poetry, you know, Arabic poetry has been around for um, over a millennia. Um, so there is, there are all these different elements of continuity and change. And I think it's also something you can apply to sort of how you think about everyday life is that there aren't these, you know, revolution happens and life doesn't change. It's, things take time, but also some things do change immediately. Um, so as I've mentioned multiple times, I absolutely love your book. I came across it because I think it, it was really an ally for me. Um, it's something I could sort of both use to inform my own arguments, but also something that I sort of trace the sources, something I can be in conversation with. Um, and I am glad that the history of the book is sort of featuring this revival in Middle East history, uh, Middle East studies, because all of these different fields of history intersect, be it the history of print, be it art history, be it book history, be it intellectual history. And again, your book is sort of a really good example of how one could do almost, you know, three or four or five different things at the same time and see them as part of one continuum. So how do you see the relationship between art history, book history, intellectual history, and what, what should it be? What, what do you aspire to? Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I see intellectual history as the kind of the big umbrella and, you know, smaller disciplines like art history and book history and so on would fit in, fit within this, this large umbrella. And, and the link, the an important link or the link that needs to be, uh, you know, emphasized here is, um, is the methodology. Um, art history and book history each have their very, you know, distinct fields and, and the very uh, distinct methodologies. Um, art history employs methods of visual analysis, uh, while book history turns to bibliographic and literary approaches. But what's really interesting is that, you know, these methods can certainly inform each other and can certainly inform uh, the intellectual history of the book itself. And, and this is something that I, I attempted to do uh, in this book. I mean, we, we call it interdisciplinarity today, but, but I also feel like interdisciplinarity is, uh, has become too much 
much of a fluid, easy term that I mean, you're not really sure what it means at some point. Um, I think it's important to, to maintain the integrity of each discipline. But I also think it's equally important to think about the ways in which we can borrow methods um, from different disciplines um, in, and, and have uh, a much more nuanced uh, approach to an intellectual history of, of, of this particular period of the 19th century. So I'm going to do something that is a little unconventional. I want to ask you about something that's out of the purview of your book. Let's just jump forward, you know, a century and a half or a century or so. Um, the transition between print to digital text, both sort of generally, but also in the specific Arabic context, what changed? Is, is it the same sort of big moment of rupture? Um, no, is it a moment of rupture? Um, but is it also this moment of continuity and rupture as we've discussed throughout this, this episode? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, of course, everybody talks about. Uh, we have the, the debates about uh, the, the death of the book in the digital era and all the stuff in the eighties and the nineties. And so, um, you know, we most people would say that yes, there is this uh, significant rupture that you have at this point in time. I'm not really sure if it, it's quite a rupture. I don't. I don't. I'm, again, I, I. It's not something that I work on specifically. But um, but thinking more broadly about this, I mean, uh, modes of production have more or less been the same in the sense that we're still a part of, of a capitalist system, right? And, and this is the late capitalist period. We still there isn't this major shift. It's not. The, it's not the same like the great transformation that we saw uh, at the end of the 19th century in the 20th century. But you do see a, a shift in, um, in the way in which uh, the notions of reading and what books look like are, trans- are being manifested um, visually, right? So we get the shift from the surface of the page to the screen. And that's something that definitely requires new ways of understanding text, new ways of thinking about what text needs to look like. Uh, what, what, it's not thinking about uh, a typeface that is cast in metal is absolutely not like thinking about uh, how you would represent a typeface in pixels, right? So, I mean, you're already dealing with uh, very different uh, technologies here. Um, and so y- you do see the kind of uh, disjuncture uh, between these uh, these these different modes. But at the same time, uh, if you look at uh, the digital books or digital text, it, when the digital was first emerging as a thing, it's, it's remarkable how much, uh, some of these things look like, or they try to emulate the printed page, right? Um, and, and it's only more recently that you see, uh, more innovations and, and thinking about new ways of reading and new, new conceptions of what books are, uh, and, and how we should approach them or how we read. So I just want to congratulate you again on the book. It is, and again, I keep gushing, but it's a phenomenal contribution to the field. It's a really well-detailed de- piece of work. It's it's nuanced. It's thoughtful. And I neglected to mention this, but I believe you won the Mesa Dissertation Prize a couple of years ago. No, actually, so, let me correct you. Uh, I was, it was an honorable mention. So. Oh, same difference. No, no, no. <laughs> no, please. No, I was in an honorable mention in the humanities. Uh, I, I didn't win. Uh, the person who works on in music in Iran won, uh, I think. So it's, uh, yeah. Okay. Very, very humble of you. But no matter what, that's an achievement because hundreds of dissertations are produced every year. And, and that your book, that your dissertation was an honorable mention even. And then the book came out so quickly afterwards and so efficiently and so well done. I just, it's such an accomplishment. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. 
So for my last question, we always sort of ask for a teaser. What projects do you have in the pipeline? I'm particularly excited about your work in, in modern science, actually, um, science in the, uh, the Arabic context. Yeah, um, I, I actually have a few things that I'm working on. I mean, that's what's so great about finishing that first book is like, you know, it's always this, this, this huge uh, the albatross around your neck uh, and you need to get that first book out and get that first re- bunch of research out. Um, but now that that's done, I, I've actually been taking my time and, and, and uh, thinking about uh, different things. And one of them, yes, is this, is this idea about uh, the modern sciences uh, in, in, in the 19th century in, in places like uh, Beirut and Cairo. Um, and specifically what I've been noticing is I've been looking at uh, journals uh, more recently. And so um, in a lot of these journals, they were these literary scientific journals that many historians have written about um, were used as a way to popularize notions of what modern science was. And what I noticed is that in, in much of the work out there, very few people talk about the visual conventions, but more importantly, very few people talk about the fact that these are actually illustrated. Um, and illustrations play an important role here because in the work that I have been doing on the printed book and the earlier printed book, you really don't get a lot of illustrations. You do occasionally get some illustrations, but, but they're, they're very far and few in between. Um, with these periodicals, you have these really interesting engravings and we know nothing about them. We really know, we have no idea where they came from. Uh, we don't know whether we have local people working on these types of engravings. But what it does is sort of it opens up all these questions that you can now ask and think about water, wider global connections. And what I've been finding is that a lot of these illustrations in scientific journals um, may have been altered locally, but also were coming from, from European and American sources, and that they were being produced and printed at the same time as similar uh, in similar uh, publications uh, in the West. And so you get an image of uh, Alexander Graham uh, demonstrating his telephone in 1876 in in Al-Muqtataf uh, in Beirut. And in that same year, 1877, sorry. And in that same year, you have uh, a similar article on it in the UK uh, and in the US. And so it, it really tells us it's, it's a really interesting um way to think about questions of contemporaneity uh, and what uh, the sciences, what, what the modern sciences um, were being used, how the modern sciences are being utilized um, by this group of intellectuals to popularize certain ideas about modernity and modernization. God, I want to read that book now. Um, but again, thank you for spending this time with me. It's, it's an achievement and I'm really looking forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you. Thank you for this.